1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 91 of the podcast. Today I'll be talking with Laura Lindenfeld, executive director of the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science and dean of the School of Communication and Journalism at Stony Brook University. I say improv... And you think show. I say improv. You think comedy. Improv, theater. Improv, stand-up. How about, though, if you think science, you think research, communication, article, conference presentation. But I say again, improv. Seem unfitting? Sound impossible? Maybe at first, but consider this. It's been my experience that people expect answers from scientists. Scientists are, for many, the holders of knowledge. But the thing is, scientists do not actually know. It's kind of shocking, and I don't just mean for the general public, but also, and keenly as well, for the early career researchers on their way to becoming the next experts in their fields, it's kind of shocking. But the fact of the matter is that the current experts in science do not have the answers. Not even just answers, really. If your idea of an answer is something sure, something definite, something like A, B, C, or D, all of the above... You see, fledgling researchers, fresh out of their master's studies or a PhD, these researchers will often enter the world of research looking up to their mentors and PIs. The fledgling researchers, of course, will observe closely and watch what their seniors do and think and say and write. And that's definitely good practice, no doubt. However, the practice is practiced best when the junior researcher is motivated not by a sort of scientific conscientiousness, that is, not by a determination to just get things right. No, the best method for practicing observation of one's seniors in the research is to allow oneself to be driven by a curiosity, that is, by the awareness and for sure the courage to ask such questions as these. Why has my PI chosen to use that method? Would that be the method I would have chosen? Is my PI's wording most suited to the purpose of our study? What is the purpose of our study? What does my PI consider the purpose to be? What about me? Do I agree with that purpose? The point I'm trying to make here is this. In research, the expert does not hold knowledge. Instead, the expert is in the act of making knowledge. Research is not about amassing information, as if science was a big bank of knowing. No, the research is actually about agreeing, but it's also about disagreeing. It's about trusting a hunch, but it's also about distrusting hunches. And it's about suspending disbelief and likewise disbelieving. I mean, the basic tenets of hypothesis-based science is that we will not know for sure, but that we are enabled by the faculty of reason to come to know sure. So the way I see it, if people are in a position where they cannot know the answers, then people are essentially operating without a script, right? That is improvisation. But to be clear, I am decidedly not saying that scientists are just making things up. It's precisely the opposite case, because what scientists are really involved in here is making do under the constraints of fallible human understanding— where precisely such things as yes-no answers would be the fiction, the make-believe, the fabrication. And so I plead for one view on science being from the perspective of the improviser. In the absence of a script where all is written and a person need only decipher the code, scientists write their own scripts and attempt to decipher the world by applying the words of their text to it. Scientists encode the world, And they do so because the world is written in forms which simply do not match up with our human understanding. And if in such a task as this you want to succeed, well then, you're going to have to do some improvising. But maybe all that seems a stretch, a far-fetch. And maybe you're still doubting that improvisation and science can sit in the same room together. Okay, well then, try considering this. There is that age-old advice to the speaker or writer. Know your audience. It's great advice, probably the single most important thing a communicator can do. However, there's a problem with the advice, or better said, the advice is a little incomplete since it leaves out this really big and essential thing. How does a communicator go about knowing his or her audience? You See what I mean? It's really tantamount to saying, write clearly. Oh yes, definitely. That is impeccable advice, but just one thing though, what is clear? Well, I see the same problem in know your audience, and I see the problem less pronounced in the part your audience because that is a quantum which we can search and analyze and question and measure and all the rest of it. I mean, if our data humanity cannot gather the facts on whom we're addressing, then we've wasted our time inventing the digital world and all the tools that run there. No, the real problem in the advice know your audience is in the verb know. How am I to know? I mean, the way to know a thing is never apparent. And it's for this reason that I am particularly thankful to the groundbreaking work of the good people at the Allen Alder Center for Communicating Science, because they do indeed have a method for knowing, and it's called improvisation. My guest, the executive director of the center, Laura Lindenfeld, she will have for sure much to say on this method, and how it provides one very fine and effective way into knowing whom we would communicate with, But to close out my intro, I'd like to present my own humble view as to why the method works so very well in science. Many people will contrast the objectivity of science to the subjectivity of everyday life. Well, that contrast, that opposition, it may sound good in theory, but it doesn't play out in practice. Objectivity in science is a fraught concept. The basic problem is it's not objective. There simply is no way yet invented for us humans to rise above our interest in the matter and just to come out and say what the matter really and truly is. In short, scientists, being human, cannot be objective. But not to worry, because science as a practice can be objective. And the element of the practice which makes the objective possible is called intersubjective reliability. Intersubjective reliability is put to heavy use in science, especially in the publishing of science. In fact, you might say intersubjective reliability is the whole point of and reason for scientific publishing. Intersubjective reliability essentially says that an observation which humans make, and so an observation which also will contain some portion of subjectivity, Intersubjective reliability says that an observation is objective if anybody can make it. The observation you see is decoupled from an individual, decoupled from an individuality, really, and the observation becomes reproducible. However, only observations that have been recorded can be reproduced. Therefore, the objectivity which science can achieve depends upon the reports communicated by researchers and the responses such reports elicit in fellow researchers. Communication is the link in the chain of objective scientific labor, and communication is, to my mind, a kind of improvising in and of itself. But clear and vivid communication, the kind that objective science so absolutely needs and requires, this good communication and especially how to achieve it, how to know how to do it. This can be one product and outcome of the technique of improvisation, as I am sure my guest today will enlighten us. So let's begin today's episode. Laura Lindenfeld in the Allen Alder Center. Hi, Laura. Welcome to Scholarly Communication.
0: Hi, Daniel. Let me say I like how you think. This is going to be fun.
1: Ah, well, <laughs> let's hope our <laughs> listeners like that, too. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, if you've liked it so far, then let's pick up with what I've said so far about <laughs> improvisation. That's perhaps the best place to jump right in. Um one of the uh, methods that I know is is used at the center, um, a method that's been explored by Alan himself in very many contexts, including his uh, his various books, is this idea of, let's say, passing an imaginary substance around in space. Yeah. So as an improvisation, nobody knows what the substance is except for the person perhaps handing it. And then it just gets, you know pass through the group. And I mean, the process of this immediately struck me as, wow, that's a bit like consensus or intersubjectivity in science. I mean, people are searching for knowledge in a very similar way.
0: I think that's true. Um, I think that's the beauty of, of improv. And if you, if you think about the word communication, do you know what the root of the word communication is? It comes from community, I mean, just that's kind of profound, that communication comes etymologically, I love etymology, out of the concept of community. If you think about shared belonging requires shared meaning, you know, if I'm standing in a room and, and I have something in my hands and you think it's a ball, but really it's a watermelon, <laughs> when I pass it to you, you're going to react differently than my I might expect if I don't convey to you. Um, But you should cut it open and have a slice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that um, Alan himself, who I'll be referring to often in in the interview for sure, and I'm I'm sure listeners are aware of his uh, long career in in the theater and in public um, as the founder of uh, this this center in and of itself, which we can say a word about uh, perhaps a bit later on, but, but he... He brings in the um, the concept here, right at this point, of empathy. Mm-hmm. Empathy being sort of that that term that covers what's happening there. Is, is is that something that you might be able to unpack for us a bit, how that works in improv?
0: Yeah, I think um, maybe I'm, I'm going to weave those two pieces together around empathy and how this center even started. How does that sound to you?
1: That, perfect. Couldn't have done it better myself.
0: I mean, if you think about empathy as... The idea that you can imagine what someone else is thinking or you can imagine what someone else is feeling, thinking and feeling are two different things. You're never fully able to stand in someone else's shoes and experience the world from their vantage point because you're you and not them. But the more that you can do to place yourself in what you think they might be experiencing, the more likely you are to understand what matters to them and how you might reach them, and, and do that through communication, because that's how we connect. Um, let me talk about how this center got started, because I, I think it, it has to do with empathy. Alan is a deeply empathic human being. Um, everybody who works here is too, and it's really the premise of improv is being able to look at your partner, and ensure that you're connecting with them in the stage that we call life. <laughs> you know, we're talking about improv and everyday life and make meaning together that moves us forward in a productive way. So Alan, um, I'm sure you and many of your listeners are aware used to be on scientific American frontiers and he would interview scientists. He has been fascinated by science since he was a small child and. Uh, across a number of experiences, he would notice that if he could get the scientists he was interviewing to make eye contact with him and make a connection and relate, that they would talk about their work in ways that were moving, vivid, clear, engaging. And I remember him describing one particular uh, experience with a, a woman scientist. And as long as she was looking at him and making eye contact, she was exhibiting all of these qualities of clarity and and vividness. And then she'd noticed the camera and and he said, it's like the white coat lab coat went back on. And she was looking at the camera and doing the talk she thought she was supposed to do rather than engaging with him in this kind of really personal way. And he then kind of was able to coax her back and get her to make eye contact again. And, And her language and her body language uh, the words coming out of her mouth were completely different and then she noticed the camera again and switched It was like a switch on and off and he thought to himself i wonder what it would take to to do this without me sitting here because i can't sit in front of every scientist all the time and pull these stories out of him them and it occurred to him ah oh, improv which is the only theater training alan alda had with viola spolin the mother of improv improv could help do this so he went around to a bunch of universities knowledge production factories i like to think our job is to produce knowledge um hopefully knowledge that's relevant he went went around to a bunch of uh, universities in the greater new york area because he lives in new york and has a place out on long island where stony brook is located and uh stony brook university said we'll give that a try and it worked
1: and it worked beyond that one scenario, uh, which is which is really the whole point of it. I mean, that one scientist. Um, this is also described wonderfully in his book. If I understood you, would I have this look on my face? <laughs> um, this 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 uh, you know one interview that he was doing. It, it worked beyond that, and and. I found it wonderful the words he used to describe uh, the, the, that female scientists sort of pull in two directions. And the one direction towards him, the interviewer, it was conversation mode, as Alan called it. And yet, once she saw the cameras rolling, or thought of the content that she was speaking. It was lecture mode. And, and, yes, and that for yes. me was just the right that just put the right terms on it, because I mean, first off, lectures, it's been proven more or less don't work. So that isn't going to communicate, right? But the conversation mode, that is communication.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, to come back to that concept of empathy, when you're in conversation mode, there's a sense of care and a sense of responsibility for and toward the person you're trying to connect with rather than Alan talks about, um, you know, spewing information like a spray can that's not communication. He says, that's excommunication. And then everybody laughs because it's funny. Um, lecture mode is about, I have what I want to say, regardless of whether you want to hear it. And here's how I want to say it. And this, this relational mode is about connecting with and being empathic toward and, and making sure that you understand your audience's needs rather than operating from your own.
1: Most certainly. Most certainly. I mean, I think that's when you start to care differently about what it is that you want to say when you know that someone else might care as well, if you can get them to. And I think also the, this idea of lecture mode, one of the words that you use uh, there to describe the situation, and I think it shows up in the book as well, was that she was thinking about what she was supposed to do. And that's supposed to is one of those key words um, my listeners will know I work uh, helping uh, scientists communicate and and that key word supposed to is one of the words that comes up so frequently it's like the thinking behind you know the checklist approach to communication you know how do I do it right? whereas on the com- conversation side, the side where you know you're fulfilling your purposes and you're helping other people is is how do I need to do it? how do I want to do it
0: yeah I, I think about. The fundamental principles of improv are so helpful here. There's, there's two basic rules. You probably know them. I'm going to say them anyways. The first rule is a mindset of yes and. That doesn't mean you agree with something another person says. It means that you accept that their reality is important to them. So that's the first piece is yes and, and the second piece is to make your partner look good. What does it feel like when you're communicating and relating in such a way that you demonstrate care for the dignity and well-being of the people who you're trying to connect with rather than intending to undermine them? And if you think about that as a scene on a stage playing yes and, and making your partner look good. If you don't do that, the scene stops. You, you cannot make that scene happen. If you apply that to the rules of everyday life, it opens up opportunities in, in community, in conversation to move the, the acts of life, the experiences we have together forward as a sense of shared, um, shared work rather than my purpose imposed on you. It also implies, and I love this idea, That communication is the willingness to let the other person change you. Doesn't mean you change your mind. I'm not going to change my mind about certain facts. It might mean you change your mind, how you connect with someone else so that you can create some shared meaning in the world together.
1: I mean, you know what what strikes me when I listen to the, the way you're phrasing these so essential and important and practical matters concerning communication. So, so the shared work right uh, the willingness to allow others affect the way you think or uh, you know the whole yes and approach it, it sounds exactly like the record of science the publication that goes on and yet and this is this is where i'd like to take the conversation if you want and yet i can see that from the outside to very many scientists this is going to look a little playful isn't it?
0: (laughs) It better. I mean, I don't want to suggest that science is just play. But if you don't have some playful mindset, scientists are creative. Let's just dispel that myth. Science is a creative enterprise, because you have to think critically and look for ideas and innovate. Um, That doesn't mean it's random and not organized. And great creativity in the arts is not random and disorganized. It's very thoughtful um, and based in, in knowledge. So it's actually really interesting. Daniel, I wish I could bring you to a workshop physically so you and your listeners could experience. I feel like a large part of what we do in these workshops is remind the scientists how creative they are, and that they came to the scientific enterprise to begin with because they care about generating ideas. It's really neat. So a lot of times I'm, we're, my faculty and I who do the trainings, we're finding that we're reinvigorating people's energy for why they signed up to do this work in the first place. It's part and parcel of what it means to be a scientist.
1: I mean, that I can underline 20 times. (laughs) That would be the passage (laughs) of the book that I would, you know, rip through the page with my pen, because it it is true. And it is the thing that is so often forgotten about, I find, amongst um, scientists. I have a fairly intimate connection to very many scientists. I know how it is that they're spending their days doing their research. And it's the thing that gets forgotten, that that passion, that commitment, that, you know, uh, I couldn't imagine doing anything else with my life. I mean, to to bring up your point about artists, it's kind of the exact same way they feel, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And it's rooted in curiosity. Can we talk for a moment about people you might disagree with? Or who don't but, want to accept what you have to say, because I think that's every there's a, other yeah.
1: researcher out there, isn't it? Right, when you're doing yeah. your project, that, that please talk about that. <laughs> yeah.
0: the people who are not um, researchers who just disagree with the, the ideas you you even want to work on, but so much about creativity is driven by curiosity, and if you're talking with someone with whom you disagree, and you want to say yes and to them. Again, not necessarily to every idea they have, but to them as a human being. And you want to make your partner look good. If you want to play by those two rules, which I, which I try to, if you can invest in curiosity, it makes you creative and it makes you think about, well, what matters to them? Why do they care? What's at stake for them instead of judging them and shutting the scene down? So I feel like those pieces around curiosity and creativity and empathy are deeply tied together.
1: Most certainly, yes, and uh, perhaps also again for the orientation of our listeners, because you also said something there a bit back about you. You wish you could bring us into, you know, an improv session. I, I feel it's probably worth making entirely clear to people that. How the center works and 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 what it's actually trying to do and how it's um how it's achieving that I, I mentioned in the intro a bit on that and and I know that for instance Alan on certain occasions has said that of course the founding idea was was to do it with improv but it's 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 not about making a connection through improv but letting the connection made there change the way you communicate so it's it's it it derives from that in a sense uh, but. Just, just for our listeners' sake, could you perhaps give us the the operating approach of the center and much of what it does?
0: Yeah. Oh, I love this question. Um, and I'll, I will say up front, we've trained over 20,000 scientists. I, I mean, but who's counting? Haha. <laughs> we've gone around the world and conducted workshops and before COVID, we did this exclusively online. Now we have workshops, I'm sorry, exclusively in person. Now we also do them on online, as well as in person. I love the in person work, because there's nothing like being uh, right, right there in a space and time with another human being and practicing what it feels like to connect. So I want you to imagine you walk into a room with a 15 other STEM professionals, scientists, uh, engineers. We also work with health professionals. Um, we, in our in-person workshops, we tend to have two instructors and around 16 participants because we break you in groups and we get you up on your feet and we get you moving and doing improvisational games so that you can learn fundamental principles of what it means to connect. Communication is connection. Things like observing other people's uh, eyes and body language, and understanding what they're trying to convey to you. Uh, we have exercises where you throw balls back and forth, and that's a form of communication. We help you distill your message down and see if it lands with your audience. You know, you were you were talking in your intro, which I thought was so wonderful about audiences and clarity and. I made a little note to myself. I thought I would say, Clarity lies in the eye of the beholder. (laughs) Who is your audience? How do you know them? We help you practice that. So, in many of the exercises over the course of the day or two days, you identify situations where you might need to talk to someone a donor, um, another colleague, uh, a family member, um, a student, and your partner who you're paired with in these exercises helps role play that for you so that you can see how that message feels and lands and they can give you feedback and it's fun.
1: That sounds fantastic. I mean, (laughs) I think, I think lots of scientists would probably want to sign up for that. And I think this idea that I was saying, um, it might seem playful to them. Um, I've, I've heard you and Alan in different contexts uh, over the past, say, three or four years talk about how there's a generational shift or a different view entering higher education now that's in and around the year 2005 to 2010, something started changing and people are more ready for what it is that you're talking about that you need to see who your audience are. What they care about, what their environment is, and so on, whereas before that time, or si- ge- scientists perhaps from the previous generation it was there, there was more convincing work that needed to go on is is that so
0: yeah i mean I, at the risk of overgeneralizing, I do think there's been a shift um, and I look, I have a nineteen year old son who's in college and I'm, I'm, God, don't ever let me be one of these people who's like, kids these days, they don't understand the value of X, Y, Z. That's just not my mindset. Um, I like to look forward and, and tend to be an optimist. And I look at the, the younger generations of scientists and I see people who have a really deep sense of care for each other and the world and... Um, Maybe a different kind of passion. It's not just about moving up. It's about the quality of the experience of the work you do and the life you live, and I think that's really so valuable to the scientific enterprise. Where we could we could get lost in in the work of what we do in our individual labs or workspaces, and forget that there's a society out there that needs and must benefit from from the the knowledge and. Products that we produce, and if we think about that society as something that science serves the interest of, it's a different it's a different mindset that you bring to your work, and I think that's really important.
1: Did I answer yeah. your question? Uh, no, yeah, I, I mean, it was it was a floaty sort of uh, fluffy question anyway, so that's uh, what you said. <laughs> no, what you <laughs> what you said made, made me think very much so of this idea that, in, indeed, we seem to be noticing more, um, and I'm thinking, again, the 21st century, basically, at that time, the last 20 years or so, we seem to be noticing more in higher education. I know from the area of writing studies and so on, noticing more that, you know, when you come to know something, it's because you know it inside of a community. Whereas I think there was a time before where in science in particular, it was like you knew it or you didn't. It was right or it was wrong. Yeah. And that if if that is the way that we are starting to really open our eyes to how knowledge is made, as we've said a few times, well, then communication just becomes absolutely necessary, doesn't it?
0: It does, um, I don't know if you remember from Alan's book, and I really love this this concept, the idea of the curse of knowledge. Um, yes. I think we've become, <laughs> I think we're becoming more aware, and that's, oh my goodness, I love knowledge. I wouldn't be working at a university in numerous roles. I wouldn't have been a professor, like this is just a dream career to be able to work at a university and produce knowledge and make knowledge relevant. Um, what it means to be cursed by knowledge is that you forget what it feels like not to know what you know. And when you do that, you only communicate it in, in the way that you think about it. And that creates distance. Um, and I think, there's a, I think there's more, you know, to come back to this idea about where, where science headed, you look at climate change, the pandemic, so many other areas where, where science is, people are aware it's absolutely critical. It's not like some nice thing we produce that, you know, we sometimes use or not. It's absolutely critical to our ability to live healthy lives and support a healthy planet. I feel like this generation my you know, my son's age, uh, his generation, maybe slightly older, they grew up understanding that in a way that, you know, old fogies like me <laughs> had to had to learn it. <laughs>
1: yeah and actually, in the book there uh, that Alan has written uh, um, if I understood you, um, he uh, says just what what you're saying in, a, in in the context of economics, I found that really interesting. He talks about negotiation and buying and selling and how you know the the economic literature anyway tells us that the, that essentially kind of puts the seller. At a disadvantage to sell, for instance, under price, because if he or she knows something about the product, it's like this human assumption that, you know, the buyer knows that as well. And that idea that he explored there with this, the, the, the person who knows is at a disadvantage. I mean, the analogy for me to science was, you know, that you, I mean, no wonder you have trouble communicating it. I mean, it's very often the case that, you know. A researcher in any particular subfield or at the cutting edge of some particular question is the one who knows most. I mean, they've been put at a disadvantage.
0: Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to share a thought with you. And I I promise it's going to link back to this. Um, I have a colleague named Chris Volpe, and he oversees an organization called Science Counts, sciencecounts.org. And what they do is they look at how Americans, I live in the US, um, this, I'm not suggesting this holds up internationally, but but it may, he looks at how Americans perceive science, like if science were a brand. What does that, what do people associate? So when we say science, most people think about hope. They think about a solution or an outcome. When we say science to scientists, people tend to think more about joy in the process. So you've got a bunch of, and we did some really interesting work on this with Chris and some some other other colleagues um, when, when you think about people who are process-oriented, who love the work and the process, versus people who want an outcome from that process, that's two really different understandings of what science is and, and what it serves.
1: But you know, that, that applies directly, I mean, you're giving us uh, the view across an entire nation public and researcher, but I, I, would, I would actually argue for the fact that the exact same thing is happening in the expert communi- communities themselves. Because, I mean, the person who's doing the research is in your joy mode, right? Uh, I mean, the details yes. are just everywhere the person looks, the details are just lovely. And of course, there's challenges, but th- th- that's, you know, that's why they got into science. But the other scientists who are on their own projects, they're looking for the outcome. What's the bottom line? What do I get out of that? How do I use it for my own advances?
0: I think that's true. That's really different than expecting a societal outcome like a solution to climate change or a vaccine. Um, Not that you don't want that, but when you're thinking about the science and you're taking joy in the process so that you can produce an outcome, if you're talking to people who all they want is what is the outcome, how this is going to help me, they don't want to hear all the details. So it's really easy if you—it's easy to fall into the trap to come back to the point I told you I'd meander a little bit, but I'd come back. So I'm coming back. To, it's really easy to lose sight that not everybody is going to want to hear all the details and the way you have to convey them with the jargon you use. They might—they may want to just have you get to the bottom line. They may never be interested in the process. And I think to be a scientist. You've got to take some joy in that process or I don't know how you'd be able to survive because so much of the work is really is really that the meticulous nature of analysis and investigation. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, It does. Yeah. And it's actually got me thinking of um, how it might be that then. If we stay inside of the expert community, right, some some subfield of biology, for example, it's just, just a random example. I'm not thinking of anything in particular, but you've got this one particular study that's being put together. We've got that joy of the process that we've just been talking about, and- if you imagine scattered around that community so many other research groups with their own joys of processes, then yeah. what, what is it that, let's say, improvisational work done by the center will help it so that these researchers make sense to each other, that they don't yeah, yeah. just pass on joy that is not, let's say, sensible or understandable to the other groups?
0: Yeah, so I think what we're talking about here is is something about and and the center does we do work on this and I've done some work in my own research on this interdisciplinary collaboration or um even just an interdisciplinary mindset. How do you how do you make um your science relevant to to another scientist as opposed to someone who's not a scientist? I think it really comes back to these principles of empathy, it feels so simple. Who is this person? Why do they care? What's at stake for them? And taking that moment to step back and think about, do they need a result from me so that they can then do their own work? It's that same concept of yes end to the situation and making your partner look good. Yeah, The context, definitely. however, is different. Um, I, I find this... I mean, so much science now, big science conducted across multiple fields, different labs, um, different organizations. I find this really, really fascinating. And it's a whole different kind of communication challenge than we would have seen in science 50 years ago.
1: And most definitely. I mean, the numbers show again and again that collaboration, inter-institute, international, and so on, across disciplines, as you're as you're describing, it is just on the rise, and it's the only way that most big questions can get can get answered nowadays. And again, a new challenge to communication of science, isn't it? Um, you bet. You bet. One of your uh, staff members, uh, Nancy Mos, has has talked about. Um, uh, a paradigm shift she even called it in, in one interview back in uh, 2021 uh, between the sort of sort of approach where you're thinking about tips and tricks and boxes to be checking off when you're doing the communication as opposed to a skill set and something that you need regular sort of reintroduction to retraining in and never can really stop thinking about in a sense and I find that really just captures the the way forward if we need to if we need communication with collaboration.
0: Yeah, I I agree, Daniel. Um, I think this is about competencies that we have to consciously build and practice. You know, anything you want to be really great at, you have to practice it and be mindful about it and aware of it. And I think a big part of what we're trying to do at the center is help scientists. Foreground communication is something important that must be attended to and not just taken for granted. And whether that's about communicating with different public audiences or other scientists. The principles are the same, of being aware. What's the situation I'm in, and what does it call for for me, for us to be able to move our our work together forward and demonstrate a care for, for the collective good?
1: And this is one of those questions that I often think about, and I know that my field of English for academic purposes often thinks about, because... It's just become a fact that English is now the, the language of science. Um, that's not a value judgment. That's just the way people communicate. Um, but it's, it's it's this concern as to, okay, scientists need their expert knowledge. This requires years of careful, close study and experimentation. But they also need precisely what you're saying, the ability to communicate their research. And, and these things need to be integrated. as really, as soon as possible, immediately, in a sense, you know, I'm, I'm thinking already back into the high school years. I, I wonder if, if the center can bring a perspective on this uh, to that integration, you know, the science knowledge and the communication knowledge
0: being integrated. Yeah, it's funny, before this interview started, you and I had a good laugh that we're both, well, you may be more than bilingual, I'm a polyglot, but we both speak German and, and English. And... Um, you know, when you code switch from one language or culture to another, it's not just different words you use, there's different concepts. And I feel like, I don't know, I, I, I feel like everybody should be learning another language early in their life. In some ways, when you're a scientist, and you're talking science with other scientists who understand you, you're in that language and that culture. And, and you have to, you have to be able to build the competencies to switch to connect with cultures who have different languages in ways that that land effectively with them i think this needs to start really early and i think it's rooted in 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 a sense of culture not not just the type of knowledge you produce but the culture within which you do that and then what happens is you know i i always get concerned about the idea that jargon is something to be denigrated look i want people, if I, God forbid, need to have brain surgery, I want the brain surgeon team to use jargon because they're going to get the job done faster. Um, If you're trying to convey something to someone who doesn't understand it in a totally different setting, be aware of your jargon. Jargon has a, a purpose and a time and place. So a lot of this is about understanding the context in which you're working. You know, think about interdisciplinary settings one person says probe, they mean one thing. Someone else understands something different. That can bring large research projects to a, to a standstill. Watch people debate about theory if that's really interesting. And then ask the public. We recently shot some interviews of, you know, what's a scientific theory? And, and I think it's kind of shocking to a lot of scientists who have been trained to understand what the fundamental concept of a scientific theory is, to see how non specialists respond to that. So bringing this level of awareness toward an understanding of the fact that other people are not walking in your shoes and that you've got to take some responsibility to meet them on a a common ground where you can create shared meaning is absolutely critical to the work we do at the center.
1: And shared meeting that you share in as well. I mean, you mentioned there a number of times, Jargon. And when you start to unpack jargon, even as an expert, right, you typically find things in there that are a bit of, well, a bit vague, let's say, (laughs) you know, I mean, if if one term in jargon has about four or five components in it, it, you know, you could ask yourself, is it four or is it five? Or I can only name three of them. What is the other one? Right. But so what I'm trying to say is the shorthand can sometimes be a short circuit of thinking as well. Right. We l- leave out a step or two in the thought process that stands behind this term. And and it's quite important, to actually, as the expert to really re- revisit what is underneath yeah. that word.
0: I think that's true. And I think Oftentimes, um, there's a fear of losing something important, and we should be really responsible in how we communicate. I, you know, I also oversee a, a journalism program, and and how we convey scientific information through journalistic and other forms of communication is really important. We're not going to get it 100 percent right in the way you will in a research article, because it requires such specific domain-specific knowledge to apprehend that that language in the way that it takes years and years to train and you get tested on, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do, do a, a really excellent job with different language and context and visuals. I mean, just think about, I think a lot about communicating statistics and probability and risk and how challenging that is if you don't actually understand and haven't been trained in statistics, probability and risk. And at the same time, there's really important things that people need to understand about the risks they face and statistics. We've got to find shorthand ways that are accurate and compelling to do that without bringing every single detail to bear. Or you're going to have to sit down and listen to a lecture, which you and I know is not gonna go very far. <laughs> <No. laughs> can actually turn people away. Like there's you know the, the risk of a backfire effect. If someone already disbelieves something and you come and wag a finger and say, No, you're wrong and here's why and I'm gonna tell they're gonna trust you even less.
1: Yeah, I mean it's about about this, a- yeah it's about this idea of of context. I mean this is brought up so much in this idea of empathy which we had sort of kicked off the discussion with that, you know, if you need to pick up people where they are, and you need to only give them so much as they can, let's say, take or digest in the one sitting, right? And this is a, an idea that's explored by by Alan in his book. Um, and if you if you're not doing that, of course, one reaction you can suppose is going to come your way is well, you're bam- Someone feels like they're getting bamboozled, right? They're <laughs> they're, they're they're being blown over with facts.
0: And there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation out there. Some of it haphazard, some of it deliberately designed. Um, I feel like I want to mention the importance of trust here. And I think if, if there's one thing I'd love for uh, listeners to take home is always keep in your mind, are you building trust? <laughs> if someone trusts you as a source, they're going to be much more likely to believe you. If they distrust you, they're going to disbelieve you. And communication designed to build trust is going to get us so much further in advancing societal engagement with and trust in science. And I think, I think individual scientists have an important role to play in this too, in their own communities, um, families. There's a lot you can do right where you live and work. To help build a, a sense of trust, you represent the science scientific community. Yeah, and I think one of the
1: yeah definitely. And I think one of the ways that you can sort of reframe communication for that need to build trust to come out, so that you're sharing a knowledge that you yourself also stand behind and fully understand, or as best as it can be understood. and And it makes me think of a line that's in uh, Alan's book. Um, if I understood you, would I have this look on my face? He writes the person who's communicating is responsible for how well the other person follows. And I mean, that sounds again, like many of the sorts of improv uh, techniques that are used at the center, as far as I've understood them. But, but, but for me myself, it's, it's, it's just this fantastic revamping of a piece of advice. that's always kind of bothered me this advice that goes along the lines of the reader's always right. Or the job, the writer's job is to make the reader's job easy. I mean, it's always sounded a little bit dictatorial to me, right? As if the reader controlled everything. But you can actually get the writer involved in this process, and that is this word, responsibility.
0: Yeah, um, you would see in the in the exercises a lot of a lot of what we do. Like if I'm leading you, imagine I'm leading you through a mirror exercise. So a mirror exercise. If you and I were sitting across from each other right now, virtually or in person, and, and I were going to follow your every move as if I were your mirror, Um, it's very hard to do. It's a, it's a fundamental principle of improv. Um, And, and what you learn is that in this exercise, the person leading holds more responsibility for the communication. Because if I'm leading you, and I move too fast, or I move in a way that like your body can't move, Um, for whatever reason, or I do something unexpected. If the goal is for us to be together, and I undermine that, I'm failing you and the communication. It's really kind of a magical moment when you watch a group of scientists realize, oh, if I slow down and operate in a way that ensures you can be with me when I'm leading the communication, it's a totally different feeling. It's like a a hush comes over the room and a kind of a really different kind of energy evolves.
1: Well, that's exactly the sorts of experiences that are clearly going to bring communication to a different level. I mean, that's, that's wonderful to hear. And, I, and, I, and from what I can see in the program of, of the center, there is clearly a lot of work that's done in speaking. And maybe you could perhaps offer us a, a brief overview of, of uh, how that's helped and how that's sort of framed. But it's not like writing is out of the mix either. There is certain also, certainly also written communication that's taken into, into consideration.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you think about writing as another form of communication, a lot of the practices we engage in in the room are based in verbal communication and, and physical communication. Um, nonverbal and verbal, in the room, in the moment, and watching your partner respond. The work of writing, we we have a writing workshop that we do as well, is to take those very same principles. The difference is in the room, you get immediate feedback from a partner. So there's a lot of partner work, just like I described with the mirror exercise. In the writing workshop, you have to imagine who is your audience and how might they respond to this. And then any, any good writer knows you want to have people read your stuff before you go live with it and actually solicit feedback. Um, So it's the same principles applied in different ways. I feel like this is like working out muscles at a gym. (laughs) You know, it's, it's one thing to be able to, uh, do like a gymnastic exercise. It's another thing to, to really work on your bicep and focus on that and what we do in the workshops is we isolate particular muscles to use an analogy help build those and then help put those together so that you you have the equivalent of a communication gymnastics that was a bad analogy but does it work <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I think it does. I I, I, say yes and. <laughs> I
0: tried it out especially for you. <laughs> but I mean, really, the idea is that we, we look at these particular muscles as competencies. What does it mean to listen deeply? What does it mean to, to hear and reflect back? Um, and then we develop exercises to work on those. So you get a much more acute sense of what it means to be a good listener and to communicate back. And then we do exercises where you think about how could you use a creative approach to describe your work to someone who cares about cooking. You know, we have, we call it hobby speed dating. So we put you with a partner and you have like a minute to, to use analogies and metaphors that might align with a hobby like cooking or reading or cycling. And First of all, it makes the scientists be creative because they have to come up with ideas. And then their partner tells them, yeah, that works. No, that didn't work. Um, and it gives you whole different language to think about your own work rel- relative to someone else's interests. Just another example to share of how we do yeah, this work. No,
1: and, and and that creative um, aspect of finding the right image or metaphor, I mean, you you could hope also that it sort of reconnects the scientists with the creative aspect, as, as you said much earlier in the interview, is, is so central to their real work of the, you know, the research, the crunching the numbers, the next specimen, the, the you know, the things that they're really answering at, at the cutting edge of their field. I mean, because there too, they need just the same sort of creative thinking, don't they?
0: Yeah. I also think it gives you, as you and I are talking, those moments, and I'm sure you and many of your listeners have experienced this moment where you take some distance from something you're focused on and really care about, you step away from it, and you see it differently, and a great idea comes up. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, it's a proverbial, I was under the shower when, (laughs) right? I mean, you're far out of the lab, you're away from your work, and...
0: Yeah, like this, the work of sleep, you know, all this research on sleep and how important it is that you take that distance, you go for a run, you go on a vacation and suddenly you're, it's like you're out of your own way and you can generate something new. So to your question about whether it's speaking or writing, this is about the generative po- process of ideation <laughs> and connection through empathy. And that and applies a- to any form of communication, really.
1: Yeah, and your emphasis on practice—you know, this this gymnastics p- image that you had brought up, the working out image—which um, which, which I, I I stand behind. I think I think I, I've used it myself. I mean, because when you're communicating, it gets back to this idea that it's not a checklist; it's a skill set. You know, I mean, if you're writing a sentence, for example, to get back to you know the mode of writing it you should be really probing yourself less with a question like which word am I supposed to use next as opposed to which word might they be expecting next yeah and if and if that word that you then go on to use is not you know the one that they're expecting well then that'll help you communicate that unexpected word won't it
0: yeah and then running that by someone else for feedback and taking that feedback as a gift so much of the work we do is rooted in in And partner work. And what we find is a lot of scientists after the workshop have now, and we move you around, you don't just work with the same partner the whole time you work with different people in the room, you get different kinds of feedback. But then you've had this experience of being able to try something out, that might have felt a little risky to you in a safe space, gave you a new idea, you've gotten feedback, you got to try it again. And now, you know, the value of working with a partner before you uh, give a talk, you go on on a podcast, you go on television, you pitch an idea to an investor, you've learned it's really worth your time to practice because your partner will support you. So there's yeah, something sure. mutual and relational there, which I love. I love watching that whole process happen in the room. It's inspiring. And
1: since we can't see it, I'm going to quote Alan one more time from his book, because I think he says in these two sentences here exactly what you're visualizing for us when it comes to, you know, full communication, where you're working with a partner that way. He writes, communication doesn't take place because you tell somebody something. It takes place when you observe them closely and track their ability to follow you, like making a sculpture out of space. Communication is a group experience. I mean, thats that that, thats its not it, isn't it, isn't it?
0: Beautiful quote. And that's what we bring to life in the workshops. And Alan got that whole thing started. Isn't that amazing?
1: It is amazing. And, and uh, from your position at the center um, as the executive director and somebody who's so committed and knowledgeable of communication, I wonder, to close out our interview, if I, if I couldn't ask you, if you look across, let's say... The entire scene of science communication, the researchers, the public, education itself. There's so many places where communication of research is happening and needs to be taught or needs to be done. And if you look across that landscape and think of the different stakeholders involved, the publishers, the researchers themselves, educators, and just, you know, us, (laughs) us, <laughs> me, you, normal everyday people, uh, who might you sort of pick out there, and, and what message might you send to them that sort of says, "This is what we can do in ten years, this is what we could achieve if we just, or some other sort of message to you that would make sense so that science communication can improve even more in the sense that the- that the center itself has improved it
0: yeah, um, I think about this. Just- a lot. Um, So let me, let me try this out on you. I feel like communication as a field, you you come from English, right? But rhetoric, rhetoric, writing? um, Yeah,
1: right. English, composition studies, and so on. Yeah,
0: yeah, we have a there's a kinship there, for sure. Um, I feel like communication as a field has often been thought of as communications, more technical, less relational. Um, we see ourselves as, as studying something that's very relational, often in real-world settings. I feel like communication is a field that's poised to thrive in the 21st century because so many of the challenges we face are rooted in communication problems and issues. Um, and I'm talking beyond the technical aspects that enable us, like right now, to talk to each other at completely different locations and make a connection. That's amazing. I'm talking about communication, research and practice that we need to invest in to make better sense of the science, technology, engineering, math, um, health. <laughs> That's my world that I walk in. Assets that are generated so that they become as useful um, to society as possible. I don't like to think of science versus society. I like to think of science as part of society and communication's role in the 21st century to help us really understand and ensure that embeddedness.
1: Well, thank you very much for that, Laura. Thank you. That's, that, that is a message for very many of my listeners to hold on to. <laughs> that is Laura Lindenfeld. <laughs> Executive Director of the Allen Alda Center for Communicating Science. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Laura. Goodbye.
0: Bye. Thank you so much, Daniel, and all of you for listening.
1: And this is goodbye to all of you, my listeners. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.